0: Former U.S. national rugby team captain. Team captain. Head coach and general manager. General manager. Now, the co founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby.
1: Hey everyone, thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co founder and CEO of the high flying New England Free Jacks and Heritage Sports Ventures. Joining me today is good friend Tom Burwell. General Manager and Tournament Director of the Dubai Sevens and the Sevens Stadium. Dubai Sevens, of course, being the sports entertainment amazing festival in the desert, one of the largest and greatest in the world. Tom also spent eight years in his growth as part of the Heineken Cup. He was the founder and CEO of Ultimate Rugby Sevens. Needless to say, sports, business, and rugby has brought Tom around the world, and now he's here on Full Contact CEO. Thanks for joining today, Tom. Max, absolute pleasure, and good to see you, buddy. Great to see you. We're going to do a quick warm-up. I'm just going to say a word, and you see, the, say the first thing that comes to mind. Sure, cool. Heineken Cup. Legacy. UR Sevens. Home. Cape Town. Oh, uh, beautiful. U.S. Collegiate Development Camp. Niche. challenge <laughs> uh, Challenging. Travel, everything, the future, exciting,
0: brilliant. Tom, where'd you grow up? I grew up in the south of England, in Berkshire. Mum and dad, younger brother, pretty two point four children way of growing up in 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 the south of England. <laughs> <laughs> what sports did you do? What did you? Do? I suppose I was a hybrid of team sports. Being, I suppose, everything through. A structured school and clubs, but we lived in the countryside, so being outside and outward bound was really important to me. So, skiing went abroad with parents, of course, but on my mountain bike, on my skateboard, on my roller skates—that's my, my my early memories of, I suppose, what I now consider to be sports. Uh, Do you I have any videos of sport? those roller skating days? Because I would
1: like to <laughs> see that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Inline skating, I'll have that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> dancing in Central Park. Kind of. No, I think <laughs> it's, it's it's a good look in the in the late eighties. That's why. Yeah. So. fantastic. And then team sports came. Team sports came. I played. I played in golf as a footballer. I played a lot of cricket. Played tennis, and of course, rugby was uh, ever centre from probably age five or
1: six. Are you still a prolific cyclist? Right.
0: I, well, funny enough, I suppose that's where I suppose the, the funny part of life. I, 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 if I didn't live in a flat pan desert. Yes, absolutely. But the cycle tracks through said desert are a little bit boring. (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, cycling is mind numbingly boring, even when in the most beautiful of places. That's why you like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like solitude is good for me, but I mean, this is extreme solitude. So uh, I don't cycle as much, but I certainly do when I'm in Europe and when I'm in France. Okay. And then how did you, how did you get, how did I get it to rugby? So um, I suppose rugby has been part of my family since forever. I have a father that's been heavily involved in the sport and is still heavily involved in the sport, it's been from player to coach, to manager, to administrator, professional through to now, you know, on the council of the RFU and I suppose as a volunteer full circle and, and, and that, that probably has had a huge impact on, on my professional life because my entire childhood was in a professional sense, you know, next to my father as as he had his living doing it. So that's probably how I got into rugby, taken down to the local rugby club by your father in the same way, but probably with a, with a slightly different view on it.
1: Terry, your dad, he took kind of the amateur game to the professional era. Was that when he was at the RFU?
0: Yeah. So I suppose there's two parts of that. He was one of the first professional coaches in, in the entirety of the UK. So oh, I didn't know um, that. he. He played for played for Leicester Tigers throughout the nineteen seventies, then coached Northampton's and and, and early eighties until I was born, really, and then played and coached for Northampton Saints, and then in nineteen ninety or ninety one, uh, a little known rugby club called Newbury Rugby Club wanted to take on a professional director of rugby, go up through the leagues, and and also sell their their uh, land to a retail sector and move to a new flashy, new rugby club. So from 1990 to 1997, he was the director of rugby at Newbury and, 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 did all of that and, and took them to national one, one league below the premiership. I suppose a great memory for me is, was well, two bits in 1996. I'm, I'm at this stage, 12 years old. He somehow had Western Samoa as they were then, then come and play Newbury in the warm up match of international, right? I don't know how <laughs> sure, that path Sure that I'm, went over as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and Newbury lost 12-6 to Western Samoa. Uh, and oh, Newbury, won good. 26, Newbury won 26 out of 26 that year in National 2. So, they were a handy team. And the old Pilkington Cup, as it were, which is as the FA Cup is now for football, but rugby doesn't have it as much, which is where all the teams went into the draw at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Newbury made it to uh, the quarterfinals and lost to Leicester 26-22. At Welford Road, in front of a full house, shouting the return of of my father as a coach. And with about 15 minutes to go, Newbury were winning. And I was on the bench that, I sat on the bench next to my dad that day at Welford Road. And I remember at about 65 minutes to go, Newbury winning and um, the Leicester bench stood up. The Leicester bench was Mike Johnson, Neil Back, (laughs) And it's time (laughs) to It was time to stop buggering around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I've got many fond memories. I sat on the Newbury coach all the way back to Newbury that evening as, as they celebrated that cup run. They lost a two, they lost two games that year to Leicester and Western Samoa. And uh, so rugby has, yeah, as I say, whether it's been on the playing field or, or wherever, it's is, is still uh, still a big part of my life. How
1: did you decide to get in the business of sport, in particular, the business of rugby?
0: I, I suppose, I suppose, where only differ from my father. I've, I've never felt like uh, the game owes me anything or I owe the game anything. I've always felt through a keen observation of, of, of North American sports and, and keep follower of North American sports and also never really understanding that <clears throat> why rugby, especially it was, it seemed quite prehistoric. So my, my interest in rugby as certainly as an adult has always been in it in, 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 as a business and how how people experience it different ways and the verticals that come through it. Like ultimately the output is be 80 minutes, 14 minutes, whatever that be. But the journey to those 14 minutes and the outcome of that has got so many different things that come off the side of it. And so I, I I have been involved in, in many different iterations of it. I suppose it's also my expert topic matter. I mean, there is a bit of that. Thanks. I, I think we're all somewhat guilty of following your nose in your early twenties to the thing that you know and yeah. the thing that i knew and the thing that i was able to kind of black slightly w- was rugby from from those experiences and 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 that has now led on to a to a you know a wonderful celebration of the sport around the world that i'm very lucky for but uh, one that i've worked hard for as well
1: so how did you like what did you learn from the experiences with the heineken cup what were your roles kind of in your early days
0: yeah, super early days and super interesting, right? I, I, mm-hmm. I saw in the, in the show notes about, and we'll come on to it later on about some sort of horror stories, the Heineken Cup. I wouldn't say horror stories. The early days, it's still the early days of professionalism, right? So, you know, before I left school in 2001, I went and watched, uh, uh Part de Prince Leicester, beat Staff Say, and you forget that that's really only like five, six years after the games got professional. I then started doing things in the sport sort of 2003, 2004, again, we're, we're less than a decade old. And I think everyone's fudging their way through it, right? You suddenly got a partner like Heineken who's saying, right, we want blanket exclusive rights across all of the stadiums, across six countries, six countries. One of which doesn't allow alcohol partnerships. The other, which, so it's the H cup, not the Heineken cup. And then the the others, well, every rugby club's primary partner at that point was a beer partner because ultimately rugby clubs facilitate the sale of beers. You know, and, and there's me in my first role as a match manager going and ensuring that sponsorship rights are delivered as for Heineken and everyone going, absolutely not. We've got a project of Guinness, sorry. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, yeah. You know, when um, we had this like blue tape that we had to go around and we had to tape up anything that was uh, in the exclusive rights category and you would go to somewhere like Northampton, which had got the tech yeah. and there'd be more blue tape than there would be the Alps. You know, and there'd be like Piggy, who's was the chairman. he played in the front row. played hundred games in the six. He's now the groundskeeper. You know, and it, as you're putting up the blue tape, he's following around and taking it down. So, you know, the early days of of what what I th- I suppose I thought was a you know, high class professional sport, I realised the sport itself was on a, an enormous journey. Still, the vector was, you know, the horizon was still miles off, right? And it's and so I, I think I learned how to. For me, I think being. T- t- having the, the luck, I suppose, and the, and the gratitude for it of being involved in the sport and the business of sport from a young age, because of my father, I probably also had my business life as a little bit arrogant, a little bit too, too quick to draw. And I think those years taught me, you know, to shut up and it probably took me a little while, probably took me yeah. five or six of those years to learn how to shut up. Like everybody in their twenties. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose. I suppose I've been really fortunate to get those roles where you, you know, you're, you're landing in Treviso and you're landing in Paris, and you're landing in Bordeaux and you're suddenly in charge of delivering a 25,000 person, you know, event and you've got Sky Sports talking to you and all these things and, you know, you think you're a your business, right? And, and, you know, there's a lot of people that teach you, you're not. So, so that, you know, I suppose my memories of those, they're, they're very telling And you, know, you know, Guy Toulouse at the time, obviously doing, uh, media post every game and the, the coach and the captain or whoever Sky Sports wants but the coach and the captain were obligated to do that you knock on the door you see, like like Vesta come out and do an interview no ramifications um, we can't yeah. character stick we have neither <laughs> yeah yeah. and like the door just closes and you, you knock on the door again you ask the same question they're like they're very categorical they, yeah no. no so once again you're like right okay so how do I go back to Martin Thomas who's the director of Sky Sports at the time so Martin, sorry, the answer from Guido is just no. But yeah. I found somebody else on the corner on the street. I think would yeah. be great. <laughs> who is
1: who is Brent? You know, at least. Just, so, what um, a fantastic like education for you though.
0: Like that is yeah yeah a yeah, well, great I, layer. Yeah, really fond memories of you know being in Glasgow and and, and on all these places. But I, I you know I didn't get the, the best games to begin with, and so I meant I went to every corner of Europe, but. And then, of course, you go on and you start doing the games, you know, knockout matches, and you start to see the sport at the level that you expected it to be. But it's not always the same as that.
1: Yeah. And at the time, you started to do some coaching, some rugby coaching?
0: Yeah, I think I think from a very young age, my understanding of the game far outstripped the physical ability that I had for, for, for a number of reasons. But I was always more of a thinker than I wow, was. you're a like. tremendous slouch, Tom. Yeah, well... <laughs> I, I I I was always more of a thinker than I was of an athlete. Right, Which is yeah. ironic because I don't actually think about much other than athletics. But yeah, I, I started coaching young and enjoyed it. And I suppose the position of coaching my my fascination with it was always as one of a, as a, a one as a mentor. I always felt that at a young age I had not love hate, but I had a very strained relationship with coaches myself. So I always felt that they I I'm not going to say it, I felt misunderstood. But I never felt like anybody got really the best out of me. And I, I, I would you know, start coaching, you know, to begin with 18 to 21-year-olds and then up to 25, and I could see straight away guys that just needed to be spoken to in a different way. And how do we get the most out of those those people so that they, one, first of all, just really, really enjoy the game, and then two, once they're really enjoying the game, you'll get the most out of them as a player. And I just got a lot out of that, both on the side, uh, of kind of business life and, and then I suppose personally, and then ended up coaching kind of here, there and everywhere. I suppose. Do you miss it? Coaching. Do I miss it oh, I think about it a lot, right? I think about the different ways that the avenue of it may be going back. I even mm-hmm. thought about like, so my yep. daughter's four now, mm-hmm. she's off of rugby's in the morning, right? I go and watch that, you know, a few times That's a good. Term, and you know, i get in the car with my wife afterwards. She goes, go on then, and then I have 20 minutes to tell them why the coach is not very good. And would I like to help her? I would love to help her, but I, I also know that it's not right. Not neither for her or right, but also for kind of me now. Yeah. Uh, and then coaching from a real point of view, I, I suppose my head is in a different place to the commitment that's required. So all mm-hmm. of those things that I know that those players would need from me and I'd want to give to them, I don't think I can emotionally fairly or justly give that commitment anymore. Yeah. Whether that, I don't really just mean time. I, I actually mean the dwelling that I have away from the game on those people to give them my best. Yeah, the emotional,
1: the emotional part of coaching. Right, it requires and, so much all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, just all the time. And, and right now, you're that's watching. the bit I haven't got. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, but. Then you started and, you know, built up UR7s. Tell us what UR7s
0: was, why 7s? Well, I mean, I'll tell you the, the full story of how I ended up involved because I, I suppose I'm the founder of, of, this, of this iteration of UR7s. But I actually, right. in, in 2008, this sounds broken up with a girlfriend. And it, it's all like, a good story start. In like the May of 2008. And I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to get a California for the summer. And I went to California for a summer and you know, it turns out all the stories are true and British accents go a long way. And we we had a brilliant summer, me and my friends, and really enjoyed it. And I took a phone call from my daddy in the August of 2008, just before what was then the middle of the Sevens taking place in Twiggy. Yeah. And he just chaired a Sevens advisory group meeting for all of the World Rugby Tournament Directors. And he said, this guy, Tim Lacey, had just presented a kind of future of Sevens, which was a media rights business, and I suppose much of what we continue to talk about now on the world series about what was required for sevens to become a truly international sport that had got value associated with it. And my dad said, just, can you come home and stop dossing around? I think it would be good for you to meet this guy. So I, I did, I flew home and I met Tim and we went into business together. The, the idea was to build a, a media rights business off the back of sevens anticipating that, you know, it was about to get the Olympic decision. It did. And we built the national seven series in 2009, 2010 here, fully televised on sky sports model was national series players. So all of the players you see play for England, Wales and Scotland, plus a number of premiership players sitting on top in a 12 team tournament, all under franchises, not too dissimilar to what you see the PR sevens now. Fully televised, great model uh, probably 10 years too soon. And we lost a bucket load of cash. We also on the night before, because the audience wasn't there yet, or we were paying for production on the TV, right? So, so our TV must was, had too much risk in it. Yeah. Um, and didn't then give the metrics of return for a partner to support the TV piece and arguably looking back on it, we probably could have, should have not got addicted by the idea of television and actually built the live transactional piece. And then taking that to television two or three years later. if I, if I, if I was to go back and say that, then that's probably the advice I would give. Because yes. we built the idea of four festivals. We placed this 12 team tournament on top of mass participation, not too dissimilar to what you see. It. And yeah. so transactionally, all four tournaments were great. They were at, like destination summer venues in the UK, five, six, 7,000 people through the door hosting model was that we we basically got the venue completely for free the festival itself would take the bar take and we would concentrate on almost like the worldwide sponsor partner piece it's not just similar again to what rugby do yeah um and yeah and the reality was is that we were we were we were hurt by a number of things one was london 2012 not including sevens so this amazing decision from Lausanne in 2009 and everything that took place in dubai the rugby sevens what cup etc and then you, then you're shouting about it and every partner's like, great, great. So it's in London 2012. No, 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 Rio. it's in Rio. Well, they don't play rugby. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, okay. Sorry. Call us when it's actually an Olympic sport, not when it's yeah. taking place in the country that the Olympics is about to be, but it's not in the Olympics. Yeah. Um, so that really helped hurt us at a local regional level and. And we had investment from, from, from Disney or well actually ex Disney executives. And we were almost, we almost pitched it, I think three or four. Yards too far down the track and, and, and didn't go small to get big. We just went in medium and that then hurt us. I look at it now, the series now still exists. It's owned by the teams, the team, some of the teams still exist and they have a, they have four tournaments every summer. And then players hate it. No. So that's the model. So it's no, it's also nowhere near the quality, right? So where we yeah. were young, Dan Norton and you know, all the superstars, right? Where it is it now? It's the best of invitational sevens. So and I suppose that I suppose the last bit that really hurt us was I went and met a guy called John Varney, who at the time was the commercial director for premiership rugby. And he is now the CEO of Brentford football club in the premier league and I went I pitched in the idea of how do we get the premiership teams involved. And I, I think you're 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 naive to to not look at sevens as the premiership teams. And two weeks later, Premiership Rugby and ESPN launched the JP Morgan Premiership Sevens series. Yeah. And they did it purely defensively, recognizing, hey, look, we don't really care. We're gonna put academy kids in the program, but we know we can't let sevens go too far without our involvement. He called me, he was really honest. He's like, love what you do but we can't let you do it. And I think yeah, those two things. So,
1: that is so, like, historically looking at that and lessons there, what's happening in the U.S. right now with MLR, and then what, what Owen's doing with the PR7s, which is great. How does that all play out over the course of the next couple of years? Which really begets the question, What is what, what, does, what does Professional 7s look like outside of this series? What should it look like?
0: And I think it's dictated, too, by what does the series look like? Which is well, I think the challenges that the series has at the moment to then allow a wider Sevens ecosystem is that the series is almost too big. You know, I know that there are Masters one thousand championships, but let's think and there are major golf competitions. But let's think of golf and tennis as an example. They've got four tournaments that matter. Yeah. Each of them have four tournaments that matter, which then allows the ecosystem to have a Masters one thousand or a PGA tour around it because you haven't got too many people trying to eat one. Yeah. We have a 10 series, 10 stop series, plus the extra women stops. So 12, 13 stops. We have got Best part of $100 million in the ecosystem every four years. And we've got players not compensated for eight of the TED tournament's not really making any money. We've got partners not really getting the ROI and the metrics for broadcast. We've got a broadcast model that doesn't work around the world because you've got too many hours. Yeah, too many hours, and it's time zones, and and it's just too challenging. To package. Um, That's a really tough package, broadcast-wise. Really, really hard. And so I think you know there's a number of ways of looking at as from a broadcast piece first, but then the challenge of looking at the broadcast piece first is the most successful tournaments are ones that look at it transactionally and have huge numbers of people through the door. So if you change the format for broadcast, what impact does that have on the spectator? But let's assume that you shrink the series somewhat. To whatever that number is, shrink four. the number of events. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Between the number, let's say you shrink it between four and seven. You, you also then shrink the number of teams on the series for men, especially. Let's say you go 12 and 12 or 12 and eight across men and women. All tournaments are men and women doubleheaders. So you don't split that out. Everything is, is together and it can all be played on one field. So you can go back to the fact that they, there is this one field, two day tournament. Yeah you've now got a bit of continuity and you've also built some solid foundations. You also then can put a challenger trophy underneath it because you've 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 cut your quality there and you can drop that into the challenger and and if you build four really strong challenger stops. For me it looks something like whatever the number of tournaments is there'd be a finals tournament at the end of it FedEx Cup style which yep. would ho- also host the FedEx Cup championship for the challenger to go up maybe the bottom four of of the like the one, I, did, is it the one you won, or is it the one you won when when Spain Spain came up? There was four teams at London that competed. Yeah. I think you were you were you were fighting to stay up, weren't you? we? Yeah, we were we were able to stay up by a point. That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And and Spain got up in in that yeah. way. So if you if you can create some jeopardy about relegation, but you also have a series winner and then a finals winner to make sure that your final tournament matters because quite a lot of the time our final tournament doesn't matter we need the final game of the season to matter and yeah. even even when south africa beat england in the final in paris three three or four years ago last game of the season they actually won it right. so you know it's a bit of a so we've got to create that final tournament to have meaning jeopardy challenger men and women you've got a series that runs to it and you've got a challenger series that runs to it so you've now got so do you have like a, a series go. winner in that model and a cup winner? Yeah, yeah basically. And yeah. I mean, and, who, and, and what and I spent not too dissimilar to how Premiership rugby is now, right? Yeah, like ultimately the cup winner is the one that matters. So it's yeah, the it's the same in NHL, right? There's somebody who wins yeah. the trophy and then the Stanley Cup. Yeah. And which then means that you've at least got, you know, a challenger teams, men and women, 16, and let's say you've got 12 and 12. You've, you've now got almost 40 teams competing, but you've also only taken up six to seven or whatever that is, five, six, seven tournaments a year, and you've got the challenges. So all you also then need to look at is a, is a franchise model that supports that right? So those players are able to drop down and supplement their income at the, what I call the more broadcast-friendly competitions. And those broadcast-friendly yeah. competitions are the three-hour hit-outs on a Friday night at spots all over the world, which could be cities that don't that are not able to host a... Yeah. 28 team hotel model. I mean, like, you know, our, our budgets are enormous yeah. and need, you know, huge underwriting and that, but there are cities around the world that probably could get 10, 11,000 people to come on a Friday night for you know, three, four hours, certainly in the big rugby playing nations. Yeah. Um, and, and what franchise model can you build in, into that around the world to support the world? Series? I think, you know, we've also got to, we've got to protect the Olympics, World Cup, I, I, Commonwealth Games. I think we have to protect them, but I also think that they eat into windows of you know then they're, they're, they're not going to be part of the business. So yeah. they actually just eat into the windows of of opportunity for certainly for the players. And I I also really strongly believe that the horizon needs to change commercially. So at the moment we live in you know quadrangles four year we we move them. All of world rugby does, right? We, you know, we sit in like the next world cups, four years away next Commonwealth everything. Yeah. yeah. Everything sits there, right? Like, which tends to mean that partnerships, horizons, broadcast models, net investments. Like if you're making a loss for a period of time, you look at it over that I also think you need to look at savings over like a TED talk and you need to go, right, what is the investment that's being made at the top, whether that's by world rugby or whether that's by a HSBC or a partner or whatever that is. And our partnership models be based on strong KPIs that actually have a longevity to, you know, for, for me here in Dubai, we can look at that over a much longer period and our partners can look at it on a longer period, we can do economies of scale that will help. At the moment, a four year deal means you have one year kind of, oh, it's a new deal, we're ready, then you've got two relatively normal years and then you've got a renegotiation. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't work. And, and I, and I've, you know, we're probably luckier than most so you know that's that's it for me we've got to we've got to shrink the top and to make sure that our quality across the board that means that that's a better challenger that's a better world series and that's a better number of tournaments to give ourselves the opportunity to then build a really quality ecosystem around the outside
1: so what does that look like it starts at dubai still in december and ends with does it come back to a dubai and it rotates almost
0: like i would do something like i don't think it'd come back i think if you if you looked at it at the traditional northern hemisphere season, so that is you know across the new year, let's call it September yeah. to, to May. The reality is it's December to May. Yeah. So you've got four, five tournaments spread across that period of time, and then you've got finals. I think the finals does definitely rotate. I think you've created the opportunity for for tournaments to tender at a really high value. And you get the very best tournaments. I don't think all tournaments should be on the same length contracts so that, you know, we're not all renegotiating at the same time. Formula One doesn't renegotiate its circuits at the same time. It matters. Yeah. So I think we should all be on differing levels and all with, with some pretty stringent KPIs and then that, that, and I'm not talking, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk out of turn here. I haven't spoken to anybody or have any understanding of what people may want, but let's say London decide that they don't want to be on the series but they want to host a London Sevens every three or four years because they host the final stage. Twickenham probably sells out if London yeah. Sevens was only every three or four years. Be massive. You know, create, I talk about it all the time in, in, in our business internally about how we're either trying to sell spots for the tournament or opportunities or experiences create scarcity. And, you know, I think that's, the challenge World Rugby did. So how do you create scarcity when ultimately at the moment it's 10 tournaments stick their hand up to go, hey, we'll host. There's 10 spots. So you've also, you've also got to make sure that you create some scarcity there to then also give the opportunities for these finals. And it might require some of World Rugby's money from from the World Cup to help with that. And it might also require some of the big partners that are in the rugby ecosystem to recognize that Sevens could be an opportunity to apply in a different demographic space. I think it's creating scarcity across
1: the rugby... Yeah, the world is just, yeah, that's, that is a very good and succinct point of defining the problem currently in, in rugby around the world. 7s, 15s, 12s, whatever it's going
0: to 100%. I mean, I even see it with some of the things I see in the US. No. Yes. I mean, names you'll know yes. what I'm thinking of. There are people yes. all over the place inventing yeah. the sport in a different way. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I I don't I don't understand that. And I, I you know, there are tens tournaments in Hong Kong which have got legacy and they're fantastic. But do we need another version of the sport but we've got a World Cup Olympics? and
1: there's no media there's no media behind it, that's the problem. That's the
0: And and and, and if there was, then we're faced the problem with it it doesn't solve the problem, it creates more problems for all of us. So so yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And 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 recognising that You know, Dubai has been on the women's world series. The only tournament has been on the women's world series since the very beginning. And this is nothing to do with the equality conversation. This is just absolutely about the fact that sevens is the men and women's sport. It's an Olympic men and women's sport. It is, that has, that has no, no, no separation. The women's game is in 15s is flourishing with its window being separate from the men's Six Nations window. Yeah. Sevens flourishes with men and women together. And, and, and actually the idea that there's a Vancouver tournament and a, Lang- and a Langford tour makes very, make, makes very little sense to me. So finding a way to make sure that the men and women are given, stay away from the word equal, because that it's not about equality. This is just about the fact that our product is men and women and yeah. ensuring that our product is men and women at every single touch point is vital. Because for me, I sell that. Like I sell sevens, men and women are included at sevens. Yeah, and I partners want to be that. And they, we wouldn't have got in the inner picks if if that hadn't been the case.
1: Yeah. And it's good business. So speaking of good business, Dubai traditionally very strong tournament started in the 70s. Just take us through quickly the history of the Dubai Sevens, but what's impressed me is how well you've navigated through the pandemic years and what you guys created this last year as an entertainment experience. Yeah, mm. but just take us through that history a bit of what we're Why Dubai? Why is there an awesome sevens tournament? One of the best sports
0: entertainment festivals in the world? Yeah, I I mean, look, it's classic. There's Brits everywhere, right? And there's British military teams everywhere. And in the 1970s, groups of British clubs, expats, military teams started a tournament and it was on the sand and it then got um, taken over by the Dubai Exiles, which is the oldest rugby club here. And they ran it until 2007. And in two thousand and seven Emirates who had sponsored it as the Emirates Dubai sevens previous to that in the in those sort of early iterations of the world series, we 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 didn't purchase it, but we built a new venue the Seven Stadium as everybody now knows we moved the Dubai exiles to that venue gave them you know free a free clubhouse and kind of room and board as it were and, and then and then took that on and it's now owned by Emirates airline and, and is a is a vehicle for communication about the airline and, and Dubai and this fabulous emirate that we live in. And it's representative of the modern dynamic, diverse demographics that live here with 198 nationalities. And and I think those are the key differences to what, what it was originally. It was originally a Western expat sport. And now it is, it is a, you know, a celebration at the end of the year for People that live here from all demographics, but also the opportunity that our audience is 35% of those to fly in to Dubai for that celebration at the beginning of December each year.
1: And you can see a very clear shift for the days when I was coaching in that event, very rugby specific with some trappings of festival around it, some additional grassroots rugby happening around it, but really not what certainly the visual that has come out after two, in 2021. What was the the shift there and where did you... How did you move
0: the company to see, I, I was interviewed by a guy called Gary Chapman, who's the former president of the airline. He's now retired. He's been heavily involved in rugby here for 25 years. And we had a really honest and frank conversation during the interview where, where I said, Gary, I, I'm of the belief that rugby is not enough. And I mean that reference, all rugby touch points in, in, in the business of the sport, like anybody thinking that just the 18 minutes is enough is bad. You know, we live in a goldfish bowl and we've got, we've, we don't have enough people playing the game for it to only matter to the people who are playing the game. And he said, he said, all right then, Tom, you know, Emirates is the best airline in the world, go do. And you know, I've been incredibly fortunate and lucky and and supported by the world's, the world's strongest airline, best airline, strongest brand in aviation. To, outside of to, Delta, of course. Yeah, outside of Delta, <laughs> United, States, <laughs> LA. No, last. just Delta. Given that opportunity, I suppose in part because, you know, we, we sponsor so many sporting assets around the world and, and this was something that brought people to Dubai. for sports. But I, you know, it was really clear that you know, moving it forwards wasn't just going to be about the three and a half thousand rugby players that came. It was about diversifying participation into multiple sports. It was about diversifying the entertainment that sat with it. But the, when, I, when I joined, it's like, despite the fact there were some trappings at festival, we, we put on buses for participants, sorry, put on buses for spectators to leave the tournament, to go to the pub down on the beach at the end of the day. It's literally like turning around as a, as a, as a landlord and saying, hi, thanks so much. Do you want to go to the pub next door? Because we, we were really operational. We were like, how do you get people away from here? Because transport is a disaster. Yeah. So you think, all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And you know, instead of going, right, well, how do you. How do you make sure that people filter and leave in a different way by putting on entertainment that, that closes down at different times throughout? So, so for me, we, we've made the transition from being a rugby tournament to a sports and entertainment festival. This year we'll have four sports. Last year we had three live music stages this year we will have three live music stages alongside some, what I would call bespoke musical experiences. We have four and a half thousand people in our, in our VIP village. That VIP village itself has live podcasts has um, its own entertainment has what i would call sort of golf quality vip sort of chalets it has a pitch side bar the music is slightly quieter in that stand compared to the other stands and you know because we have no seating there is you know our uh, south stand hong kong experience the reality of that is is that it's across the across the across the entire stadium the the emirates a380 flyby takes place sort of as as the sun is setting uh, disclosure, the EDM act closed our stage frequency on And uh, We have rugby, the rugby rock stage, which is a bit more classic for the, I call it the gray pound, but it's harsh. It is for the the more traditional rugby sevens audience. We have the Belair Day Bar, which is absolutely Cafe Mambo out of Ibiza, who this year will be headlined by an absolute classic Ibiza act. And, and what have we tried to do? We've tried to look at some of the things that have been really successful around the world, but look at some of the things that people like to do in Dubai, because that's what we were competing with. We were competing with a land of opportunity, a little bit like Las Vegas, where there's just so much going on here. So how do we make sure that yeah. on the Friday, Saturday of the weekend, they want to come to us? And how do we, how do we, I know I have a big thing on our office wall, to of the first things I did, said... It says, be the leading tournament on a strong HSBC World Rugby 7 series. And I mean that. It's like, look, we needed to be a leading voice in change, but we also then need to really support the series being at its strength. So, you know, we've now got a digital app, which is our ticketing platform and also our digital wallet. So I can profile every customer. So as every payment they make through their digital wallet on, on the bar and at what time at what time. The only like way you can use tickets and pay in the stadium? Correct. Well, you, if you pay by credit card in stadium, it's 10% more expensive. And okay. it's the only way And it's the only way that you can use your ticket. So your ticket is in your app. You purchased it in the app or the website. Those two talk to one another and you arrive and it's like it is an Apple page it just sits there as a ticket. It's also got the fixtures and we had over 2 million uses of it over the three days That's uh, awesome. with, with over a million of those being in, in the scheduler. So now you can go in and we've, we've played around with that. And you'd go in and go, right. Favorite teams, USA, Tiger, rugby, Atlantis, and, 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 and then when Atlantis and, and Tiger rugby were out to play, it would buzz in your pocket. So that's taking place on pitch five and you go over to pitch five, you know, oh. previously perhaps put in there going, what type of entertainment do I like? Well, I, you know, I'm a big fan of this type of entertainment. It buzzes in your pocket. It tells you to go over there at certain times. Don't miss the flyover, and, you know, it comes over so. It's all part of the, of the experience. And that's, I think if I could sum up my two years here, it was, we had this wonderful, wonderful mum and pop asset, which was, was representative of so many fantastic things, 50 years. And it almost ended with Kylie Minogue singing the 50th anniversary, right? Because that if anything, if an act could ever summarize what the Dubai Sevens has always been. Is this, this Western Australian superstar singing and, and that age graphic and demographic being yeah. perfect. And now the iteration is, was, we want to keep all of those people happy, but drive more people in and we talk to them in a different way and we, we are all the things that we say we are and, and, and give the, the, the expectations that the audiences have around the world now, whether they're transactionally at the event or whether that is via digital media. I think one of the really important things that we talked about it in the office today was I wanted to turn spectators at the Emirates to buy sevens into fans of the Emirates to buy sevens. And what I mean by that is that you may be English or American and you support your national team, but the reality is, is that they don't win every tournament unless you're South African um, or Fiji. Yeah. But the reality is, is that you go and you, you either have a second team or, or, or you you're just enjoying the sevens. And, but part of that is that you can enjoy the sevens anywhere else in the world. So my, my view is that as well as having a favorite team, you've got have a favorite tournament and you've got to enjoy the content and consume the content of that tournament year round, because you are a fan of the Emirates to sevens and all of what the Emirates to sevens does, which encompasses all of those things. So we turn spectators to fans and. And that's been our clear sort of always-on content strategy of how we transition. 365.
1: Are you finding that people who are showing up for an EDM concert or um, a rock concert are transitioning to becoming spectators of the rugby who originally weren't, who then become fans of the overall experience? Are you seeing that happen where people are participating in the cricket and then they're becoming fans of the sport of rugby in that process so
0: so so i suppose the sevens is still at the heart of everything and what what we've we've, you know we've got some interesting data about there are some people that will arrive at 6 p.m which means they only get the last couple of hours of the rugby and and then they're into the festival stuff we've got the cricket netball and what will be fitness fan the fitness participants this year they are hundred percent you know, we close down their sports. They come into pitch one. And I know that it was during the pandemic and off the back of the pandemic, but it was incredibly, incredibly special. On it was the Friday night more than the Saturday. On the Friday, we close all the outer fields down eight PM. And you've got England's got GB South Africa is the last game. Lights on. You're in the middle of the desert. You've got no reason why there are 35,000 people watching Rugby Sevens in the middle of the desert, and the place is booting off. You know, we've got a yellow DHL roof, we've got a blue Donato roof, our red Emirates roof. We look like a Lego stadium. We've got the drones up there, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm I'm, I'm probably skirting a bit close here. You know, nobody said he got too far, but yeah, I, I, I was like, and but the, the place was just rocking and. I'm getting messages from people going, this is what it's supposed to be. And, and people, not just spectators, but I was getting, you know, the head of sponsorship for HSBC, and the head of sponsorship for DHL going, this is what it's supposed to. That's awesome. And I'm like, okay, well, we may be on to something. So I took them all backstage. I took all the big wigs backstage for the EDM concert. And we looked out over there, there's 11,000 people on, on Pitch 8 and Pitch 7, and it's just going crazy and all of those people had been there when GB played South Africa. So, you know, whether that transition sticks is and makes you fans of rugby, there are people, and I, and I suppose the last bit I have on that and the way I'm inspired is that the now chief revenue officer and fan engagement officer for World Rugby is a guy called Richard Hazelgrave and he has come from the Australian Open in, in Melbourne tennis. And the way he surmised it, who Melbourne tennis is the most successful of the four majors, despite the fact that it's completely different, it is. It has the most, has over a million people going through it over those, over those two weeks. And, and the reason it's the most successful is that they, they look to themselves and say, well, we can't be Paris because we're not Paris. We can't be Wimbledon because we're not Wimbledon. We can't be the USA because we're not in New York We're Melbourne. So we've got to be something different to that. We've got to have. I'm going to the tennis, meaning something different for each person. So that could be the person that wants a high-class food experience. That could be the best kids. That could be the best concerts. For every single demographic within Melbourne and Australia, there was something there for them. And then at the core of it, they also then want to watch tennis. And that, that's kind of it for us, that we're not. That's why I took rugby out of the name of the, of the, of the brand. We are now the Emirates Dubai Sevens, not the Emirates Airline Dubai Sevens. That's... Because what I want people to say around the world is I'm going to the seventh, and yeah. that'd be it. And you know, just at that point there, that's, that's what it is. Now, what do you love about the seventh? Well, you know what I love, I love that little speakeasy where you knock on the door and you go and open it and it's a speakeasy. Do you really have that? Yeah, yeah we do. And, and, and that's, and then they, and then later on they're in the stands and where are you? I'm in the DHL stand. Where are you? I'm in the Emirates stand and somebody said to me I first joined, said Tom, in the in the early days of the Emirates by 20, twenty twenty five years ago, we'd arrive. And we'd be like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do this year. And of course, when something's growing and it it gets different every year, that's exactly what they did. But I had to recapture that. I had to recapture yeah. the imagination of the people that've been coming through the door. Like, and the big challenge is, how do we do it again this year? And, and do it know, bigger okay, and better. That's all. You do bigger and better, but you know that's 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 the fun of it. So yeah, we're 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 really 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 excited for two thousand and twenty two. I. We, we were, we had limited crowds in 2021. We were, we were only allowed 80% and I'd like to thank the UAE government because, you know, we went for a huge process there, but Dubai has gone from strength to strength during the pandemic because we've dealt with regulations very, very well and reality is, is that perhaps masks were supposed to be worn, but masks were not. And, and I was turned and we had a remarkably successful weekend. Very grateful to whoever I need to be grateful to. But 2022, without those things, I I am so excited to see that place.
1: A lot of the activations you're talking about are magical, but there's a lot of cost to those additional activations. How do you see that in the overall business model that you're just seeing such an increase in audience that that revenue will return in time
0: based on the cost? Two two bits. We have a long horizon on spectators. Okay. We have a longer horizon on spectators' so yeah. which we, we probably took even more so because of the pandemic, knowing that we were going to have restrictions on, on audience that we said, right, okay, well, the ticketing revenue vertical, we need to have a slightly longer audience on because we know we're changing. We know we're going to lose a few, we're going to gain a few, et cetera. We also didn't really have the data to make anything other than subjective decisions on that. But what I suppose we did know is that we were going to go to market to, to our partners, which made up. 45% of our revenue anyway, and go, we're now going to give you the experiences that, that, that we know you're going to get more out of, and we can prove that. Okay. So we, we did mid to short term deals. Some of which we did one year's single one year deals that we knew. So for example, beats on to Belair at Daybar, I'm literally on the side of pitch two, I knew that place was going to our biggest success. Yeah. And so. We did a one-year deal with Bacardi, and that deal with Bacardi literally covered my costs, and, and, and you over-delivered for them, over-delivered for them, and then I've had a really fun negotiation. And <laughs> and, and he and and Ramsey, who who's the, the guy from Bacardi, he he was brilliant, but on the on the Friday morning, he still didn't believe. Me. He still he's like, I, I, I you know, I just don't think people I can't. I was like, I promise you, I absolutely promise you. And I walked in Friend of yours, Haskell was DJing on the Friday night. And it was, uh, because of restrictions, the bar had a capacity of like 850. Could not move in there. You could not move in there. And like, that's awesome. Up, well, one meter audience, obviously one meter gap. Yes. It, it was a different time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and. and and he, and he looked at him and I was going like this, you know, I was with myself and I was like, show me the money. And, um, he's like, no, absolutely. Really grateful for Heineken who have been a you know really long-term partner of ours to have been, to have had the, uh, agility to say, yeah, okay, let's bring in a, a spirits partner that, that is going to only help us sell beers. The reality is it's the, it's the Bacardi Beats on two bar, Bombay Sapphire, but 55% of the drinks in there were Heineken. And, and Heineken needed to have the vision to know that this was going to help them sell Heineken to not hurt them from a brand point of view yeah. so I'm as grateful for Heineken as I am of, of, and then the same, that's the same across the board. Like it was, it was, it was building commercial partnerships where they saw that vision and, and, and it took a lot of me sitting in front of people and, and going, I need you to believe in me. Actually, I need you to believe that, that this is going to work and luckily the majority did. And those that didn't, we're now having really good conversations because it was like, look, if you don't want to be part of it this year and it's just too challenging and it's just too, I suppose, outlandish, that's fine. We'll just have a really honest conversation again next year after we've done it. And and that's exactly what we've done. And, and commercial revenues are up from a partnership point of view. They were already quite big, 70%, 80% year on year. Wow, uh, that's awesome. And and so so we are able to play that longer horizon on, on, on tickets. The big challenge for us is, and we were sold out in the tournament itself. So we still got 5,000 participants. But I think the, the larger challenge for us long well, term will be to drive our international audiences back. So traditionally 35% international in 2021, 18% international. Now, clearly I want people on planes, not something that sits in my P and L, but obviously for the group that's important. How do we get the international audience back who, who the reality is they haven't been since 2019, When we come back in 22. So there's three years for, for groups of lads and girls who've made the decision, oh, we'll probably go somewhere else and I'll, I'll book a trip to Amsterdam. Oh, Amsterdam was great. Let's not go to Dubai this year. So, you know, our always on campaign actually is now slightly tailored throughout this summer to certain markets where, um, telling fantastic stories about the everest to buy so that will appear in content all over the place we won't overtly yeah. sell but yeah. we'll just go to the front of mind but serious fomo when you look at what's happening
1: with with your social media which is fantastic yeah. if you were just going back to the participants the, the people yeah. who are in the cricket and everything else are they paying to participate in those things and does that include a ticket or how do you what is the yeah. economics of that
0: yeah. Yeah. So, so that was the bit that I was always confused about when I went to USA sevens, Vegas, and I understand why they did it. But it was the, my great frustration. You know, I'd, I'd go to play in Vegas, you'd pay your $1,500 to enter the tournament. And then they'd be like, you need to purchase 17 tickets now to enter the big stadium, which would mean that I would probably only go on the Sunday because I'm not going to buy three days of tournaments. So for us, actually our model is that the entry fee is exactly the same as the spectator's ticket price. So okay. Using dirhams, it's four hundred and seventy-five dirhams. You're allowed fifteen people in your team, so it's fifteen times four hundred and seventy-five. And whichever way you now work it, they either they either play in the tournament and pay for it, and they get their spectator for free, or they're spectators and they get their rugby tournament for free. It's brilliant. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 uh, you know, we, we we go live for registration on March the first each year, and uh, we go live for payment on May the first. It's first come first serve to those that have registered previously, and we'll sell out on May the first. We were set.
1: Right. And you have a group that you just have a sports director kind of running that whole thing.
0: Yeah. So we have a sports operations team, Simon Jelovic, who's a bit of a legend in, in sports ops and him and his team, you know, deliver. And I think the big thing for us is that when you come to Dubai as an invitation team, you, you get the, the experience of, of the really, really, really top end rugby tournament. So yeah. you're on beautiful green grass. There's water there for you. There's five officials. The registration system is perfect. all of those things that, you know, perhaps when you're at the mom and pop competition, you don't get, because that means that I just want to go back to Dubai and, and, and that's it. We, you know, we have 128 international teams come and take part in the rugby bit itself and, and, and obviously a lot of netball and cricket as well. And and 70, 80% of them are returners year on year. So, you know, that says a lot for, for, for their rugby experience because if their rugby experience wasn't good, then the rest of it is kind of irrelevant.
1: Yeah. If you were, if you were, so transplanting yourself to, back to North America for a bit, because you know, Yeah, lots of rugby here and Major League Rugby. And if you were running that, like you're going from a situation with Dubai Sevens, it's a festival destination, singular event, effectively. Yeah. Understanding you run the venue for the rest of the year, but that's the sure. big piece of it. Now kind of transplanting, that type Mm. of model and you know for us in the in the free jacks we got eight matches we have to get through then we do that across the league what what would you be doing how would you be looking at it and and
0: making it a um, successful business i've been watching i suppose i suppose rather than giving my two pence on what i would do i'm I'm interested to converse about what i've seen it's been great to see different ways of approaching and certainly as an, as a, for international consult folks so kind of either via the digital piece and, um, watching people that have not one been to America and watch rugby too, got any involvement in American rugby community idea of what it is, become fans of certain teams. Yeah. You know, you know I, I find that fascinating. Yeah. Like, awesome like, nobody all that city, but you know, what is the Austin Gilgronies for me? Yeah. Uh, and you're like, yeah, right. Yeah, literally, literally. Why? Why isn't just um, everybody fans of Free Jacks and that's it? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Or, or be like, or at least base it on cities that you that you have a, a, a feeling for or a knowledge of, and you know that. Funny enough, for me would be it'd be like Boston, New York, LA. Right, it's the yeah. traditional sort of triangle. You'd see those audiences drift towards those places. But it's been it's been interesting watching the 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 Guilty obviously, who have gone you know big name, cool kit. But I find it strange to then go put yourself in the rose bowl. So I'm like, turn it on. I'm like, cool. Roll well, rugby has no fans, yeah. Because that that's my takeaway. Now I understand. It doesn't say that for college football, right? Like it's a big old stadium. It's and then and then I and then I'll watch some of the things that you guys have done, and also the arrows. I'm intrigued by the arrows because I think the arrows rallying around community there in the similar yeah. way to the way you have within a, a Canadian environment, given the challenges they've had by playing yeah. away for most of their time is. Is really fascinating i think i think much too. i w- if i was if i was playing in that space i for me i wouldn't be able to resist there being two clear verticals There would be the clear transactional everyday client community i need to build a community that that for eight times a year this is the, the this is the best experience however that experience transpires how do you get somebody to buy a four pack of tickets so they come to four home games and what are those, yeah. in a similar way to now, how do you get a, a baseball team? How do you get somebody to come 20, to, 20 times of the 82 times? Yeah, And that's got to be transactional experience. It's got to be more than the rugby. It's got to have, it's got to attract groups of people, not individuals. It's got to bring together an experience and the culture within six to 10 lads with wives. It's got to attract families. It's got to, it's got to be quite wholesome, I think from the, from the outset. But then I think there's another very, very clear vertical that if you just concentrate on that and don't concentrate on the digital consumption from an international piece about how do you make your brand cool? Not just at a local level, but an international level, whether yeah. that's niche, cool, or how that stands out, however those things be, you almost need to s- separate those two bits. Because what I need to be able to know is that if I land in Boston on any given weekend, I know what a Free Jack's experience is going to be and how you've yeah. spoken that and how you've made that to me. I don't, I think there are some teams and perhaps I follow teams that I know of people a little bit more yeah. than others, but at, you know, some teams, I'm not sure. I I know what the experience is going to be. I, I think I know what the experience would be in Seattle. And I think it would be yeah. great. Likewise, I know what the experience would be at the Guiltini's, but I'm not sure I'd go for any other reason other than yeah. the fact I think they're quite a cool brand. Yeah, I, I've I've really enjoyed the Free Jacks representing a region because that has obviously truly been successful for the Pats and yeah um, for the Celtics and it completely yeah it's clearly something that that works in Massachusetts and and and, and the, as the a new England versus the world
1: like literally that's the mindset.
0: <laughs> I I had a I had a fantasy American football team called the Real England Patriots and. Um, <laughs> 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 and that was because I was adamant that there was only one England yeah. at risk. So I'm just yeah, incredibly nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, that regionalization is, is, but how do you make that regionalization then call cool for me? And that's what yeah. you know, the Celtics were able to do through people like Larry Burth, right? Yeah. Um, and Tom Brady is re- the reality of what Robert Croft and Bill Belichick have yeah. done is that they won championships, which is why they made them relevant. Yeah. Uh, And for you guys, I suppose the challenge for you is how do you represent that region, but then make me want to come and go, you know what? That's a region that I want to be involved in. So that's, I think it's a very exciting opportunity.
1: That's really well said. It's super well said. I mean, just
0: thinking about our Instagram for the last
1: 30-day growth was 13.9%, which is crazy, which is awesome. So, awesome. but but the, the feedback, you know, I'm giving my team on that too. Sometimes it's too much rugby and... There's, yeah. there's a lot of other groups that really don't know rugby. It's like, again, back to the fishbowl and the echo chamber, Yeah, that's only going to take us so far and getting out of that is really, really important. And it's, it's, and it's
0: interesting. Uh, it's really interesting for us, mate. What we found is despite, despite all of this being about giving more experiences, the feedback and the surveys, and we've got huge exit survey data because of the app was that people come to the rugby and and then they stay for the other things and they return for the other things, but they don't come without the rugby. And then we try to kind of do a piece of work where we take that transactionally as a kind of guest to move that into a digital consumption piece. And it's actually similar, despite the fact that by far and away the most successful thing for us was Frequency On A with Disclosure on that stage. The content that we push about Disclosure does not engage nearly as highly as some of our more defined rugby content that is... Yeah with the context of, of disclosure. So, yeah. you know, we can't go too far down that channel because people are like, remember who we are. We're rugby fans. that like that. And even if you were a person that came for the EDM, you follow another page for EDM. You don't follow the Dubai Sevens. For yeah. Them. So, really so recognizing those two pieces and, and also knowing who you are and knowing your voice and having truth behind your voice. And this great girl, Alex Cook, who has made content her own and we, we, we went through a bit of a slow period. We lost a lot of our audience in between December and January because people transactionally followed us for the event. And so if I just use Instagram alone, we had, we finished. So when I joined, we had 13,000 followers. When we finished the Dubai Sevens in 2021, we had 28. And, awesome. uh, and then we dropped 26 mid January, and now we have 32 and a half. And, That's and, and we, it, it was like, it, and I said to us, I like, don't worry in January. We're going to drop these people off. We just need to go back to remember what our digital voice is in that quarter. It's always different to be in the billboard that we are in the fourth quarter. Yeah. So, um, yeah, super excited mate. And as ever, you're still following my nose and still, um, you know, still, you know, interested in opportunities around the world and intrigued by what's going on elsewhere, but, but loving From life, it. loving life here. Yeah, quick rapid fire. Best rugby destination
1: besides Dubai? Besides Quincy Stadium, Veterans Memorial Stadium for the Free Jacks?
0: Oh, oh best rugby stadium or oh, best rugby destination in sevens. Then, if it's not in Dubai, it's South Africa in a final in Cape Town. It's your yeah. test map. Brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant. Best night out? Mykonos, Greece. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anything behind that? Yeah, I'm a raver at heart, max, and uh, uh, I, I, can't, I can't, drop it. Yeah, it's a <laughs> You'll <Australian. laughs> be
1: there at fifty. <laughs> That's awesome. Any Heineken
0: Cup horror stories that you can share? Uh, I just, they're not necessarily horror stories, but I suppose we, we had, we had two, two travel, not disasters, but one. There was so much snow one year in Europe. That a lot of the Sky Sports commentators would go and do a Friday night game, then a Saturday game, and then a Sunday game across Europe. They'd be on and off planes. And there was so, so, so much snow that you couldn't get out of the destinations that you'd land. So I just I just remember uh, spending the entire time on, on kind of phones and supporting Sky Sports of like, how do we get Dowie Morris to Glasgow? You know, he's in Treviso. Oh, Matt Perry's there. He'll do some commentary. So I, re- I remember like the desperation of, because, you know, trying to get 24 games televised across the weekend. Was yeah, she's tough. Advantage. Especially if you're on location. Uh, yeah, on location is hard. So, you know, obviously two fixtures, one sticks out, This um, Bloodgate. Oh, I was at that game. Um, and also when Jamie Cotewell. Was the Bloodgate,
1: was that known live happening in a live moment or did it all after the fact? It was, it
0: was, it was, it was, it was, it was, very soon after the fact. So like the, the cards tumbled quite quickly and then the Jamie Cudmore getting hit by black wasps and then I, you know, I just got some really fantastic memories of, of, of finals and just being in France and the culture of it and being in Italy and as, as like a, as like a young man and my father was great French friends and we now both live in France, right? So we're Francophiles, but he always used to speak of this French rugby culture and this French rugby culture being very open-armed and and very warm and very laissez-faire about the sport itself, which is kind of always where I've been. And, and I, I just remember being in, you know, Berets, which obviously now you know, very close to me and, and, and Toulouse and Bordeaux and these places And it just being like, wow, this is awesome. Like, and we yeah. a glass of red wine and some cheese instead of somebody who would go say, have a yard of ale. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just way better. Awesome. Um, When's the next place to drink it us?
1: That's <laughs>
0: Last question,
1: bring it sure. full circle. If you were running the free jacks today, what would you be focused on?
0: I mean it's still you know, going back to where it is, is you, you can't go away from the performance on the field, right? In those early days. Yeah. You you could do all of the things that you wanted to do and all of the things that sat around it, and if you turned up and the arrows put 50 points past you, then those things become white noise. Yeah. The reality is, is putting a competitive team on the field in those early days, winning the hearts of twelve-year-olds to seventeen-year-olds, that can win just because they came and watched, you know, Free Jack play and made heroes of Nate Ebner behind you or what have you. Like they become yeah. heroes, they become heroes via victory, right? They become heroes and of the region because they're representing the region and winning. So for me, it would be that. And then when you when you when the rugby, I always used to say on tour, when the rugby starts, everything else just
1: yeah it's really interesting and then, then with the front office staff our challenge is we want people to leave not necessarily even knowing the score because they had such a great experience otherwise
0: but, yeah, of course, yeah but but you've got to you, you've got to bring them there for the rugby and get them to return for everything someone said that in some data.
1: tom how do people get a hold of you? you know it's dubai sevens is the handle for on social media for for dubai sevens right
0: yeah, for all of them at, at Dubai Sevens across across every amazing Instagram and TikTok channel, come and have some fun with us. And as we say to all of the other tournaments, it's it's pleased to see them get something back on because it's been boring at the top. <laughs> That's brilliant. And how do people get a hold of you? Tom Bell so Sevens on Instagram, and always very open for any form of a conversation about just about.
1: Tom, brilliant, so good, and you did just doing awesome. It's great to see that the changes that have been made and. How much the event is flourishing with your leadership. Thanks everybody for listening to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO. Stay tuned for a slate of exciting guests in the world of sports business and of course rugby. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the latest updates. You are sevens championships. <laughs> US Collegiate Development Camp. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I mate. Mean, no worries. Thank you. Brilliant.